Broadcasting live from Stony Creek. Oh no, I'm well. I'm in Stony Creek. September twenty fifth, two thousand fifteen. Today we have a quote on the second jhana. Kind of a poetic sort of description. Robin, would you read it for us? Yes. By the stopping of logical and wandering thoughts, by gaining inner tranquility and one pointedness of mind, one enters and abides in the second jhana, which is without logical and wandering thought, and is filled with a joy and happiness born of concentration. And with that joy and happiness born of concentration, one suffuses, drenches, fills, and permeates the whole body so that there is no spot in the entire body that is untouched by that joy and happiness born of concentration. Just as in a pool fed by a spring with no inlets in any direction, where the rain god sends down light showers from time to time, the cool water welling up from a spring below would suffuse, fill, and permeate that pool with cool water so that no part would remain untouched by it in the same way, in the same way one diffuses, drenches, film, fills, and permeates the whole body so that no spot is untouched. Right, so this is a description of the kind of meditation we call samatha, which is this great blissful feeling of the blissful state that comes about when you focus the mind usually on a concept. It's one of the four jhanas. Each one has a description like this. So this is the kind of meditation that comes to you, uh, comes to meditators in our tradition in the beginning, but we don't dwell upon it. We try to streamline it a bit and move on towards uh, insight. But it's definitely a positive aspect of mental development. So to, I don't have much to say about it actually. Today, um, I had a bit of a hiccup in the uh, appointment slots. For those of you who are involved with that. I'm not really sure what's going on, but my feeling is it might be have something to do with uh, being here in Stony Creek, I don't know. But if so, then it should work again tomorrow when I go back to um, to Hamilton. And in the meantime, uh, I'm going to look into look into maybe changing to back to Google Hangouts. We can instead post a Hangout link. I don't really know. If that will work, it maybe won't work quite the same. I'll look into it though and see how that works. Um, but maybe tomorrow morning we can do a hangout hangouts instead for those people who are signed up. We can. Uh, you need hangout. You need Google Hangouts for that, and we can meet using Google Hangouts. 
I don't really know what went wrong or what's going wrong. Maybe some ports on the server, actually. That was something I was going to try. Um, right, last night we were going to test out the, the room again, right? I didn't, ever, I didn't ever go in it. I popped into it and Charlie was in there, but um, it, it was just a black box. Hmm. Didn't didn't seem to work to show both of us, so still not quite perfect. Hmm. Yeah, maybe it's our uh, web server. Um, so, does anyone have any questions? Yeah, there were some questions posted from earlier today. Hmm. Um, a question for Monte tonight. How do you argue against the theory of animal overpopulation if none of them are killed? I have also heard about such things as mad cow disease, which only exist because of cows reaching a certain age. Right, so out of concern for world population um, and, and human health, we should continue to kill things. Not the most convincing argument. <laughs> um, the, the, um, it's funny, the Buddha, Buddha took a different view of uh, sickness. And one thing he did say, which is an example of his view, is uh, before the slaughter of cows, there were only three sicknesses in existence. And I think one of them was old age. Um, and after after they started slaughtering cows, he said over 100 diseases rose up in the world. So the Buddhist response or claim I guess is that it's actually karma that for the most part anyway if we were smart and wise and took care of the world in the right way sickness wouldn't arise but um so that's to do with sickness. As for overpopulation, I mean, there's the, the real answer and the, the better answer is it doesn't really matter. There's, um, there's a short story by Ursula Le Guin, who is an old science fiction author that I read a long time ago. But she has this story that's just paints it so perfectly because there's a society that has become a utopia 
everything is perfect. They have no problems. They have no troubles. Everything is wonderful. But in order to make this happen, there's a child tied to a chair in a cellar somewhere. And it's um, neglected and fed just barely enough to keep be kept alive. And its limbs have atrophied by being tied to the chair. Or maybe it's not tied to a chair, but it's locked in a room, in a dank room in a cellar. And that, that child's, um, or the utopia's existence is dependent on that child's state. You know, it's a fantastical, uh, hypothetical situation. But the point of the story is that it's, it's, it's morally untenable. You know, happiness, um, true, well, true well-being can never be uh, morally, it's not morally tenable, you know, as long as there's still, uh, you know, you're causing suffering because of it. You know, knowingly engaging in something that is causing this suffering to this child. So the question being asked is whether you could live with yourself. And Buddhism sort of looks at it all that way. You would never sacrifice your moral principles, your ethics, in order to find happiness. I mean, it's selfishness. So if it means the, if it means one's own death, one would never kill. I mean, it's not even a really hard thing to understand. There's, it's hard to put into practice, I guess, for people who aren't uh, familiar with Buddhism, but who aren't comfortable with that, with the level of, of moral or ethical um, principle that a Buddhist as aspires to. But it's really, a, I mean, it's not, I don't consider it a very difficult argument to, to counter because you're, you're, you're weighing two things that are, are of very different value. One's uh, happy, one's comfort, let's say, and one's ethical integrity, which is more valuable. And this is the... This is the debate, not even really a debate, but the, it's the, the battle between good and, and comfort. You know, so this is why rich people can be very, very stingy because they've found goodness, they've, they've, they weigh their own comfort higher than goodness. Which, I mean, for a Buddhist, it's really a no-brainer. You'd never kill just because it meant inconvenient. Even if it meant the end of the world, you still wouldn't kill. Thank you, Monte. Um, another question. I've been meditating for a little over a year and I'm consistently getting a feeling that I'm not controlling my body. It feels like it's just moving by itself. Should I be concerned about this? Uh, 
I mean, I, I, I'm not quite clear what you mean. There could be one of two things. I assume you're talking about your ordinary movement, like, like lifting your fork and putting it in your mouth or walking down the street. If that's what you're talking about, then that's a normal experience to have. I mean, it's a sign that you're seeing what's really a part of you're seeing into the nature of it, that really there is no self in control. The mind initiates, but even the mind is, you can see, is not an, a self. Even the mind is just moments that arise and cease. But if you're talking about these involuntary movements like rocking back and forth, that's something a little bit different in that it's sometimes hard to tell that you are instigating it and you have to be careful to not be careful, but you should stop it and say to yourself, stop. stop. Those kind of involuntary rocking movement. I've been involved with the Buddhist group here in the UK, but have felt sometimes unsure of the teachings they give. Sometimes feels like it's not real Buddhist teachings. How much should I follow my feelings? Don't always understand where the feelings in me come from, but it just feels like hippie Buddhism. Hmm. Don't follow your feelings. Follow my feelings. I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious, I think. But, uh, but um, when you're asking me, and so my answer has to be all well, the way I teach. But the point of me saying that is that, what do you mean Buddhist? They call themselves Buddhist, and uh, voila, there you have that kind of Buddhism. They believe that to become a Buddha, you do certain things, or in re in relation to the concept of a Buddha, you do certain things, and therefore that's their brand of Buddhism. So, if you want to create your own brand of Buddhism, then follow your own feelings. But if you want to follow my brand of Buddhism, then you'd have to compare what they do against what I teach. If you want to follow the Pali Canon's version, uh, with the Bo of Buddhism, then you'd have to read the whole Pali Canon and then weigh it against what the Pali Canon said. But but even then, actually, that's a bit inferior in in the sense that the Pali Canon is is books. You, you won't get a clear a clear um, comparison in all cases. Like you can't ask the Pali Canon what it thinks about practice X, right? You could ask me what sort of practice that is and so on. And then you can either believe me or not. But, uh, that's really it, is you have to decide what brand of Buddhism are you going to follow? What, uh, what tradition, what lineage? And then everything has to be compared to that. You can also go by some of the things that are said in the Pali Canon. There are, there are general principles that you can follow. I mean, I would say follow the Pali Canon and even the commentaries because they're old and most original. I believe in, in the importance of getting cl as close to the original teachings of who we believe to have been a, a real Buddha. And I think the Pali Canon is pretty, about as close as we can get in modern times. And there are principles in, in it that you can follow to 
that the Buddha said, this is how you can know what is a pure teaching and what is not. Charlie just had a comment that he he fixed his webcam and one was able to see in the room today. So that's good. Maybe it's maybe it's just minor problems with the with the new what, what is that what is it called? I forgot what technology that is that WebRTC, but WebRTC, thanks. It's not working across the board. It seems like some people, both Bond and I now have had problems. Mm -hmm. So inconsistent. Yeah, that doesn't really bode well. Yeah. Can you talk about the importance of precepts? Precepts. If one doesn't follow precepts, can one still get benefit from meditation? Well, it's not the precepts per se. It's what's behind them. It's the orderliness of the mind, the... the I want to say controlled, but it's not really controlled. It's the orderly nature. So there are certain mind states that cause a disorder in the mind, and that is harmful to one's concentration and makes it more difficult for one to attain wisdom. Clogs the mind, colors the mind, colors one's perceptions, that kind of thing. So that's what we want to avoid. The precepts are just a guide by which we can know of the types of activities that are going to inevitably give rise to these types of states, this, this disorderliness. So states of anger, states of greed, states of delusion and the guilty feelings that we have, the worry and the fear that come from being a bad person. And so, on. so, no, I mean, if you've never taken the precepts in your life, you can still meditate. But if you're doing things that cause intense states of greed, anger, and delusion, and guilt, and fear, and worry, and all that to arise, that would be very difficult for you to meditate. I am meditating for 30 minutes, and almost all days I notice a great fear at the end of my meditation. Should I extend my meditation periods to confront my fear? Well, extending your meditations is always good if you have the time. Whether you have fear or not, but that's a valid part of your meditation and that is a reason why we're meditating to learn to be free from fear, to be patient with it. So yeah, for sure, go for it. But it's more, I mean, you don't, I don't think you really want to necessarily just, uh, because of the fear, you want to just in general, like, you know, extend it. But uh, are you also doing walking meditation? You're meditating for 30 minutes, and that's 15 minutes walking, 15 minutes sitting. Up in both, 20 minutes walking, 20 minutes sitting, 30 minutes walking, 30 minutes sitting. Bhante, did you explore many traditions before settling on this one? Do you feel it's important to explore different Buddhist paths? No, and 
Only if you're not doing this path. If you're already on this path, forget about the rest. I know I never explored any others. It's then you say, well, then how do you know? How do you know there's not a better one out there? I explored other ones. This is the best one. Yes. The most if humble it, as well. If it were discovered at some point in the future that the cycle of death and rebirth was a misunderstanding, would it be immoral or unethical to omit this knowledge in order to reduce suffering for the good of living beings? I mean, since it's since it is a fact of life, why would you? It's what if questions. It's a bit irksome. Why even ask? But if you if you're if you, what you should be asking is just a general question because there's nothing to do with rebirth. Your question has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the idea of whether you should hold on to teachings that go against reality, which of course you shouldn't. If a teaching, any teaching goes against reality, and then of course you should. I mean, it's pretty much a no-brainer. Why would you hold on to something that goes against reality? That's the whole point, come to understand reality. Bhante, while meditating, I try to observe the experiences as inestimable, insatisfactory, and uncontrollable, and to observe cause and effect, but this distracts me. Should I just be mindful and forget about trying to realize these things? Inestimable. Unstable, I think. Unstable? Yeah, I'm sure that is, yes. And that's the real problem with with uh, trying to observe impermanent suffering and non-self. I mean, your best you have the best of intentions to try to understand impermanent suffering and non-self. You try, but it's, you know your mind is changing all the time, and, and it's often pleasant. Not if it's pleasant, then it'd be easy to look for impermanent suffering. You know, if it's if meditation is unpleasant, how could you possibly find impermanent suffering and non-self? You don't have the peace of mind to do it. And uh, you can't control your mind long enough to be able to see impermanent suffering and not suffering. How could you possibly see these three things? Am I right? It's like it's like looking looking for your tail, right? Or, or trying to chase your chasing your tail, sort of. Or like it's like looking for your glasses. Ajahn Tong's secretary one day was looking for his glasses and he was looking everywhere and he was so upset. He's not really a meditator. Well, he's, to say the least, he's not a meditator. Running around, running around, and he, oh, frustrated and upset. Where did I put them in? And then Ajahn Tong, finally, after some time, Ajahn Tong, you know, pays attention to him, <laughs> turns and looks, they're on your head. <laughs> I'm not really making fun of you. It's just, um, it's, it is a problem. Definitely, definitely don't go looking for these things. Every day. 
the big problem is problem with looking for them. It's not what I said. I was being somewhat sarcastic actually, which is probably not very nice, but the point that when you look for them, that's intellectual knowledge. You won't see them. In fact, part of the reason why you won't see them is because the reality is impermanent suffering and non-self. You can't make something like that happen. You can't you can't create that kind of knowledge. And as you do it, you will be experiencing impermanent suffering and non-self trying to do that. We have to say, we have to be very clear, we're not practicing vipassana, we're practicing satipatthana. When you practice satipatthana, vipassana arises. You can never be practicing vipassana. That's not how it works. It'd be nice if it was guaranteed like that, but not quite. Okay, we have a few questions. Why do people want happiness? Why do people want to stay alive? And is peace more important than happiness in the sense of gain and pleasure? Is peace the ultimate goal in Buddhism? We're checking out our questioners as to whether they've meditated before. This person hasn't meditated. So no, you don't get to ask all those questions. You want to ask, ask me questions? Not a rule, but in this case, mm, too many questions. A sign that you have to do some meditation. You have to read my booklet. It's important to help you decide on the right question. Bhante, is the way of teaching by saying, thus have I heard, particular to Theravada teachings, or is that considered the way in all lineages of Buddhism? Interesting question. Um, the, the idea of thus have I heard is really interesting, and it's a matter of, they actually talk about it more than you would think. And it's discussed by the commentaries, and there's this um, wonderful project that's completed in Burma, but they tried to start it in Thailand. I don't know how far they got, where they take apart the Buddhist teaching word by word. Each word is dissected for meaning. So the first word in the Brahma Jala Sutta, Iwang, is dissected. And I think the entire Brahma Jala Sutta was translated, and it was a whole volume, a thick volume just on the sutta. So you have a whole page just about Iwang May Sutta, at least a page, maybe more. Just explaining those three words. Um, the idea behind it is that you are describing, Ananda was describing what he had heard. He had received from the Buddha himself. I think some some part of it is, is making it a statement of truth. You don't actually know that the Buddha, this is what we have heard, this is what has been heard. But I don't know that that's really how it's explained. The Orthodox is more like, you can, you can believe this because it was heard by an Ananda from the Buddha. The Buddha himself told this to Ananda. The Buddha would come back and tell Ananda, Ananda all about what happened. During one session... Okay, so there's, there's a little bit more there. Oh, sorry. Um, 
Theravada Buddhism doesn't have that. It's from the Pali Canon. And it appears to have been from the original uh, transmission. And this was how they were remembered to start as starting with the words Evam Sutta. Um, I don't know whether it's in the Sanskrit version. There is no Sanskrit version left, but whether it's in the Chinese uh, main, um, was left or the Chinese version, which is very similar to the Pali. I don't know whether it maintains those words. But it's not about Theravada Mahayana, it's about groups of texts. Do the texts have it, right? The Pali Canon has it. Um, as the Sanskrit version, I don't know. It's probably very easy to find out, but I just have that question to test. During one session of meditation, can we focus on only one of the Satipatthana? You walk with one leg. What's a good answer to that? Um, they're all there, so yeah, you could. Uh, you'd be ignoring a lot of stuff. So walking on one leg, you got two of them. Good. Probably wouldn't get very far. What do you think of the Dharma Overground? Is it a good source of information? I don't really think about the Dhamma overground all that much. So I can't answer that. But that's with a lot of these. It's hard for me to answer those questions. I kind of live under a rock. What qualities should fulfill to arise different knowledges? Satipatthana, don't worry about the rest. Just practice atapi sampajano satima. Those three qualities are enough. Bhante, my respect is deep. I would like to ask you do you know whether meditation is more important than happiness? Again, someone who's not meditating. Are you a meditator? Not yet. I appreciate your respect. Thank you. That's kind. I'm not going to answer it because it's a. It sounds like a question of someone who hasn't really done meditation. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of new people here tonight. They may not know about the green and the orange names and, and all that. We we can tell whether you've been meditating with us. Yes, the 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 orange name tells us that you haven't logged in to meditate. No, just because you're orange doesn't mean I won't answer your question. That's not the case. But and just because you've never meditated with us doesn't mean we won't answer your question. But it's a good excuse not to. So I'm going to use it from time to time. If you don't want me to use that excuse, then you have to meditate with us. So if someone meditates, you'll answer anything then? More likely. Well, I can't use that excuse, that's all. I can use sure. the excuses. My head hurts, you're making my head hurt. <laughs> my brain has stopped working. I like that one. That happens. 
What should be the frequency of noting, or how often should we strive to note? Mahasi Sayadaw, I remember reading somewhere where he said once a, once a second. That seems reasonable. But that's kind of like, wouldn't go any faster than that. Sometimes it's a bit slower, that's fine. I have a lot of doubts about the practice, doubt that meditation works, and doubt that it's possible to attain Nibbana. How can I deal with this? How do you feel about that doubt? Does that doubt make you happy? Do you enjoy it when you have that doubt? Most likely the doubt is unpleasant and cause of stress and you know, in a bit, it, 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 um, debilit it's debilitating, most likely. In which case, I would recommend that you meditate saying to yourself, doubting, doubting, after which the doubting should cease, at which point you'll feel better. Uh, so Baron does meditate daily, so you just have to log in here to do your meditation and, and then you create a record and then your questions will be welcome. Well, you should be practicing the way we teach. It's just kind of an odd question. Meditation is supposed to lead to, lead to happiness. How can meditation be more important than happiness? It's like, is the cause more important than the effect? Well, I guess so, because the effect doesn't lead to the effect, but the cause leads to the effect. We're all caught up. I've been fairly rude to my audience today. Not answering their questions, making fun of them. Hey, you guys want to go into the? Uh, should we try going into this chat room? Yeah. Let's do a video chat for a bit. So we'll end the broadcast and let's have an informal video chat and see how see if it works probably won't work for me i'm guessing i won't see any of you and then it'll just be the end for me so good night and i'll see you again tomorrow if not I'll see you in the chat room thank you bante thank you Robin.